keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, but even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans in the South. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. We're really seen as a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shooting, the violence, that is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. It's no secret that a lot of Americans still have trust issues with the Democratic Party nominee Hillary Clinton. After raking in tens of millions of dollars in campaign money from powerful special interests, Recently uh, named nominee Hillary Clinton announced, in my first 30 days as president, I will propose a constitutional amendment to overturn Citizens United and give the American people, all of us, the chance to reclaim our democracy, end of quote. Now, she has also been strongly in favor of the Trans-Pacific Partnership and fairly recently switched her position on that. Of course, people have doubts During the campaign, she declared in a debate that Bernie Sanders voted against the General Motors bailout when that was simply not true. He, in fact, voted in favor of it. Does she mean it when it comes to wanting to overturn Citizens United? Or is the fact that constitutional amendments are historically exceedingly difficult, very nearly impossible to pass, uh, part of her game plan? As one who, frankly, did not support Hillary Clinton in the primaries, but now does, uh, that's me, if only because of the imperative to stop Trumpism, how real is her commitment to overturn this awful ruling by the United States Supreme Court? With us today to talk about Secretary Clinton's proposed 28th Amendment to the Constitution is Jeff Clements. Jeff, thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Thank you, Bert. Good to be here. Jeff is former Assistant Attorney General of the state of Massachusetts, the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, I should say, author of Corporations Are Not People, co-founder of Free Speech for People, and co-founder and president of American Promise. He is a leading expert and advocate for a 28th Amendment. Well, just to refresh listeners' memory, now I know probably most everybody listening to this knows what Citizens United uh, is, but just briefly, what is the decision that the Supreme Court made, and how seriously did it undermine democracy? Well, Citizens United uh, versus the Federal Election Commission was the 2010 decision where the Supreme Court struck down the Bipartisan Campaign Reform Act. That was known as the McCain-Feingold Act after the Republican Senator John McCain and Democratic Senator Feingold from Wisconsin. And the law had essentially uh, reinforced what we've done in American life for more than a century, which is try to keep corporate money out of our elections. And uh, in the middle of the 20th century, unions were added to that. So it was a common and essential uh, mechanism to prevent the overwhelming of our elections uh, with concentrated sources of money which crowd out the voices of 
uh, ordinary Americans and the people and corrupt our political process. The Supreme Court swept it off the books, struck it down under a theory that corporations have speech rights yeah. like people and that money is like speech and therefore unlimited money is free speech. Uh, and it has been devastating. I think uh, most Americans see now the folly of the Supreme Court in that decision. Our political process is overwhelmed yeah. by concentrated money, $30 billion spent since the Citizens United decision, most of it from far less than 1% of the people, much of it from global corporations, untraceable global money coming in, and billionaire money coming in. Yeah. And so the decision was an absolute catastrophe uh, the court has doubled down on it with a series of decisions since then, yeah. which is why a, the only way to fix this problem once and for all is with a constitutional amendment that overturns the court. Well, what, what, well, first off, what, what's wrong with the legal argument that money equals speech? I can, I can kind of see that point. What is, what is uh, the basic flaw in that that you think uh, can be uh, shot down pretty easily? Well, well, the fundamental problem with that is, is that. If money equals speech, which is, is really a, a metaphor, of course, money is property, money is lots of things, money is sometimes involved with speech. You need to buy uh, pens to write, you need to buy computers to send things, you need to buy ink for making a sign. So, of course, money has something to do with speech sometimes. But the problem with the notion that spending money, contributing money, um, is always freedom of speech no matter um, how much it is, is that it conflicts with the fundamental American ideal that we are equal citizens in this democracy and that we have equal representation and we govern ourselves. Yeah. Essentially what the court has done is take a, something that's really special in our, in our life as Americans, our democracy space, and said it's just like the marketplace. Because in the marketplace, you know, we, we accept that people with more money can buy more. Mm -hmm. um, we might not always like it, but we accept in right. the marketplace sure. money is a free exchange and those who have more of it get to buy more. We have never accepted that in democracy where those with more money get to buy more democracy, mm. buy more representation. So that's the fundamental flaw. If you look at our elections as a marketplace where money is the free exchange, the free speech of it, and you don't want to limit speech. Well, what you're really saying is wealthy people and big corporations and big unions get more democracy, and those with less money get less democracy. And that's just not the way it is in America. Yeah, that's that's the idea of what democracy is. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here on Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about uh, Secretary Clinton's proposed 28th Amendment to the Constitution to overturn Citizens United. Our guest today is Jeff Clements, former Clements, I should say, former Assistant Attorney General of Massachusetts. Now, isn't a constitutional amendment exceedingly difficult? In my memory, the most recent uh, significant effort came close, and I think it was 1972, the Equal Rights Amendment, which was a very, very simple uh, proposal, I think just saying uh, basically equal uh, work gets equal pay, something like that, and it didn't make it. So what about using, focusing on a constitutional amendment? Uh, is, it, is this the best way to do it? Is, is, is it likely to, to pass, do you think? Uh, yes and yes. Yes, it's the best way, and yes, it's likely. And let me say why. Um, there's no question that it's difficult. Uh, you know, you're you're absolutely right, Bert. This nobody should underestimate the difficulty of a constitutional amendment under Article Five of the Constitution. You need two thirds of Congress to vote it out. 
um, or a convention, which we haven't done before. But essentially, two-thirds of Congress need to vote it out. And then it goes through the ratification process, uh, where 38 states need to ratify the amendment, and it becomes part of the Constitution. Now, we've done that 27 times. We did 12 amendments in the 20th century alone. Um, it's how women got the right to vote. It's why we elect senators. It's why we have a federal income tax. That was struck down by the Supreme Court, overturned with an amendment. It's why we don't allow poll taxes to keep people from voting if they don't have the economic means. Struck That was upheld by the Supreme Court. Amendment overturned it. So it's what Americans do when the democracy is on the line. And yes, yeah, sometimes it doesn't quite make it. But you know, on the Equal Rights Amendment, I think it's an interesting uh, perspective. The amendment, uh, the Equal Rights Amendment to guarantee the equal right of women and men, uh, did clear Congress by two-thirds. Yeah. It went through the ratification process, and it came awfully close, just a few states short before they ran out of time, which under that particular amendment, they had given a seven-year deadline. Uh -huh. uh, but when you think about it, uh, the equal rights of women, uh, like like lots of American uh, life, we're not there yet. We haven't you know, quite reached the promise of, of full equality and equal citizenship and liberty for all. But we are so much closer. Uh, my daughter has so much of a better chance yeah. in life and so much more equality than my mother did yeah. because they fought for the Equal Rights Amendment. So yeah, once we pick up the mantle and say we're not going to tolerate Citizens United and domination of money in elections, we are going to stand up for ourselves and have a have it out with the 28th Amendment. Whether we make it to 38 states, which I'm convinced we will, there's unbelievable support for this uh, across the country, but whether we make it or not, the day we start standing up and fighting for it is the day we begin to fundamentally change the situation forever, just like they did with the ERA. Oh, I think it's it's so necessary that we do overturn this one way or another. And as with so many, uh, dare I say, liberal initiatives, there are many organizations now working to overturn Citizens United. Often these groups don't co coordinate. I'm not sure they even communicate. Uh, and there are lots of groups working on uh, overturning Citizens United. In your view, is a constitutional amendment the most realistic tool to get the job done? And following that... The uh, the next president will get to uh, appoint more members of the Supreme Court. Can't they just overturn it that way without the heavy, heavy lifting by a constitutional amendment? Yeah, it's a great question, and and um, you know fundamentally, there's two there's two ways to reverse the Supreme Court when the Supreme Court makes a grave mistake. Um, one way is a constitutional amendment, but you're right. The other way is the Supreme Court can always correct itself. Right. And when judges uh, won't correct themselves, sometimes judges come and go, and there's a new Supreme Court that does correct itself. And that's what happened with Brown versus Board of Education, mm -hmm. upheld or, or reversed uh, Plessy versus Ferguson, the Supreme Court case that had said segregation by race is, is constitutional. Brown versus Board of Education, of course, said that you cannot segregate, the states cannot segregate right. schools and have schools only for whites uh, mm -hmm. aside and African-Americans and other schools. Uh, that, that was historic, and it was the Supreme Court correcting itself. Bear in mind, it was the Supreme Court correcting itself after 50 years. It was the Supreme Court correcting mm -hmm. itself, mm -hmm. leading to decades of work to implement that decision. Um, so there are, there are fallbacks to relying on the Supreme Court to do the job for us. If we do it by amendment, it's forever 
and you build and win the American consensus that makes it stick and actually sets a better foundation for moving forward. So I'd be delighted to have the Supreme Court correct itself to see some new justices on the court yes. uh, and, and, and correct their error. But I, 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 I don't think that we should sell ourselves short as Americans and say somebody has to do it for us or that we're going to mm-hmm. rely on you know, the same people who got us into this to get us out. And that's where the amendment comes in. Um, you know, so, so Citizens United was a 5-4 decision, Yes. That, but it overturned a previous 5-4 decision called McConnell versus Federal Election Commission that had gone the exact opposite direction, that had upheld the law, keeping corporate and union money out of elections. So if we have another 5-4 to four decision going the other way, uh, that might last for a while, and then it might get overturned the other uh. way. The only people who can settle this once and for all and say, look, money is not the decider of who gets a vote and who gets representation. One person, one vote, equal citizenship. That's the American way. We settle that once and for all with the 28th Amendment. It's just a much better strategy than relying on the court. And I must say, we have the national consensus already. Hmm. Um, You know, this is across the partisan line for this. We have 80% support among Republicans, independents. Democrats. Just recently, Janesville, Wisconsin, hometown of Paul Ryan, Hmm. voted 84%. Paul Ryan is the Speaker of the House, the Republican Speaker of the House, 84% in favor of the constitutional amendment to overturn Citizens United. So Americans want this done. I think we can do a good job of it, a better job than the court. And we may well do it sooner than the court get around to fixing this. Yeah, because you have to wait for the proper case to get in there. They can't just... Exactly. Yeah, and, and one never really knows for sure. You, you write that uh, the split over Citizens United, quote, reflects a national conflict between two irreconcilable constitutional values and that only one of these constitutional values can prevail. But please, please say more about that. Yeah, you know, if you think about it, all constitutional amendments and, and big, big constitutional questions, which Americans take on every generation, is fundamentally a debate about two different visions of what our Constitution means. And, and usually in these situations, you can't have both, and there's no middle ground. Um, and then just some examples. You know, women either have a right to vote or they don't, right? So, you know, it's hard to believe, but there was a serious debate, and it was very hard that finally won that women have an equal right to vote. But there was no middle ground. You know, you, 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 you either accept that we mean it as Americans when we say it, we're all created equal, or you think that, you know, men are more equal than women. Yeah. You either accept that, you know, African Americans don't have the same rights, or you insist that, of course, they do. And the American promise means we're all equal. And amendments like the 15th and 14th and 13th Amendments that overturned the Dred Scott decision and, mm-hmm. and, and said, uh, you know, reset our American promise that we are all, in fact, created equal. There are two different, un- incompatible constitutional visions. Of course, only one, I think, is the right one. And yeah. I think, you know, these fights are about getting the right one, which is more consistent with our promise mm. of equality. And that's where we are now. So when the Supreme Court decided Citizens United, it wasn't as if it allowed states and local governments and Congress to not have regulations on, on, on money in our elections. It insisted there can't be regulations on money 
in our elections. It had to be unlimited money. So it left no middle ground. Montana had a law going back to 1912 that kept corporate money out of elections because Mm. in the last Gilded Age, Montana was completely dominated by mining and other corporations. The Supreme Court struck down that law. So by saying we are not allowed as Americans to actually take steps to get a handle on the unlimited money in our elections, Mm. the Supreme Court has disempowered us. They've They've, they've stripped us of our rights as citizens. So we either accept that or we overturn it. We either have a system where money decides who has a say and who gets to participate in our political process, or we have a system where we say actually equal citizens means that democracy is a place where money doesn't give you more say, more representation. You can't have both. It's one or the other. Mm. And this amendment settles that question for the right in the right way. And there are clearly uh, people who believe in plutocracy and are against democracy. They they might not call it that, but there are those interests, uh, the Koch brothers, etc. Who, Mike, in twenty fourteen, when Democrats ran, you know, largely against the Koch brothers, most people, it seems to me, had no idea who they were. They were thinking of Coca Cola. My sense is now people do know a lot more about Citizens United than they did about the Koch brothers. But again, historically, we had a uh, uh, war of independence. There was a system in place that worked fairly well uh, before the revolution when uh, the aristocracy ran everything. They had a lot more power. Part of our revolution was about having an actual democracy. And it seems like this very notion is is at stake right now. Do we have a democracy or do we have an oligarchy or a plutocracy, which, of course, is something that uh, Bernie Sanders talked quite a bit about. And um, let's face it, um, Hillary Clinton got a lot of money into her campaign, largely thanks to uh, unlocking the door of tremendous money flowing to candidates, unlimited money, by the Citizens United decision. And as you know, there's no secret that a lot of people have trust issues about Hillary Clinton. Uh, there's, I mean, she recently selected uh, Ken Salazar to be the uh, uh, um, person uh, helping uh, in the transition, and he is a uh, big. Wall Street uh, person who uh, supports the uh, uh, Trans-Pacific Partnership, people do have, uh, and as you recognize in your article, that Hillary Clinton is, quote, not a fully trusted advocate on this. Uh, Given that she made a lot of money, she benefited from uh, Citizens United. For those Americans who are serious about restoring democracy, she now calls for a constitutional amendment. Do we have reason to trust her on this, or, or might she just be doing it for public relations, you know, just saying, oh, yeah, I'm for a constitutional amendment, knowing how difficult that is. Should we trust her on this? What do you think, Jeff Clements? Well, I don't think it's really about trust. I, I don't think it's about Hillary Clinton. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm glad to see her support for a 28th Amendment, but, you know, we have support from lots of people on all sides of, of, of the aisle. Uh-huh. Um, and as you point out, Bernie Sanders ran against Hillary Clinton, talking about the 28th Amendment at almost every stop. We have, you know, Representative Jim Leach, former Representative Congressman, Republican from Iowa, uh, on our advisory board at American Promise, as we have Democrats like Mike Dukakis, too. And, you know, Jim Leach says that Citizens United has pushed us into corporatist oligarchy and very much supports the 28th Amendment. In the end, though, this isn't about 
politicians. It's not about Hillary Clinton. I think, uh, you know, it's that when a presidential candidate, um, someone who could well be the next president of the United States, says in the first 30 days she'll push for a 28th Amendment, it's not like she just thought of the idea. Yeah. It reflects the fact that in these past five years, 700 cities and towns have passed 28th Amendment resolutions. 17 states have called for the 28th Amendment. Uh, in Montana, the year Mitt Romney won Montana by 10 points, 75% the same day voted wow. for a 28th Amendment Ooh. resolution. So I think you know Hillary Clinton did not get where she is by uh, not being uh, uh, paying attention to something that is really demanded by most Americans. And I think she's recognizing this is demanded by most Americans, and it's not only a good idea, uh, it's, it's well-supported in the country. So just like the Supreme Court, can't, uh, we can't leave it to the court to do this. We can't leave it to any politician to do this. Um, any president actually doesn't have a formal role right. in the amendment process. Right. We need to get two-thirds of Congress, and then we ratify it in three-quarters of the states. So it's nice to have support from all, all areas, and all mm-hmm. candidates should support this. But in the end, we have to build and connect as a movement to get this done across all of the partisan lines and win in every all of those states uh, where we need ratification of this amendment. And, and to your point, Bert, about the different groups, I, I do want to say sure. there is cross-partisan uh, w- work on this. It's not just liberal groups. And there is a lot of good communication. Oh, good. At, at American Promise, we're actually convening the first annual National Citizen Leadership Conference in Washington, D.C. on September 30th, where we will have leaders not only of all the national groups working on this, but citizen leaders from the states, those who are winning those resolutions in the towns. It's going to be a great celebration of our progress, a great sharing of best practices and things we can do to move this amendment forward in the coming years and, and, and soon, and things we can do to make sure that we don't just have promises hmm. from politicians about this, but we get action on this. So uh, I hope uh, all your listeners will join us down at the National Citizen Leadership Conference. Well, I was going to ask about uh, what American Promise is. You are co-founder and president of American Promise. What is it? Well, you know, we, we have, as I said, this work has been going on for five years. And, and as, as you pointed out, Bert, we, need, we do need more unity. We need more communication. We need more network connection among the, the many millions of Americans who want to see this done. Yeah. And that's what American Promise does. Uh-huh. It brings us together. Uh, it's, you know, a, a rare place in American life these days where no matter where, what your partisanship views are, your, your, your political loyalties, no matter your, where you live or any other, any other aspect, if you're in support of the 28th Amendment to overturn Citizens United, as most Americans are, yeah. American Promise is for you, and it, uh-huh. it gives, provides that connection, that network, those tools, and the national strategy and game plan to win this 28th Amendment. So we have the cross-partisan advisory board. We're bringing this conference together. We just uh, put someone on the ground in California where they're having a ballot initiative uh. to call for the 28th Amendment uh, in the November, the same in Washington State. New Hampshire's just been terrific with yeah. uh, 70 or so towns uh, at town meetings and communities passing resolutions. The New Hampshire rebellion up there yes. was a terrific example of that, and we'll have folks from that down at this conference. So we're really about um, accelerating and improving the citizen work to win the 28th Amendment, recognizing that 
you know, this isn't something we just ask, you know, politely for and politicians no. will get done. It's really <laughs> up to us and we need more of those tools and those connections to get this done. Absolutely. That's what American Promise does. And and the idea of democracy, you know, it's like absolutely key. It's the most valuable thing about America. And so many people have come to accept our own powerlessness. And it is absolutely wrong. We are not powerless. And and when we accept powerlessness, you know, it's terrible. It, it really degrades democracy. And this is something that you're right, left and right. A lot of Republicans, uh, at least here in New Hampshire, were supportive of New Hampshire rebellion. And I think, as you say, across the country, this is not a partisan issue. We want our democracy back. I wanted to ask one quick thing that I've been thinking about for a number of years. I've been to countries where uh, there's free TV time. And, you know, in virtually all the discussions about campaign finance reform, the focus has been on the supply side, getting control over how much money can be spent by interested parties. It seems with most things in a capitalist system, wherever there's demand, there's going to be a supply. So what about the demand side? As I said, some countries have free TV so that each candidate or party gets a certain amount of airtime, no more, no less, with which they may do whatever they want. Wouldn't requiring free TV reduce the demand for political money? I mean, it's a sort of separate issue, but what do you think about that as yet another way to go to ensure uh, real democracy? Well, you know, it, Bert, it's an interesting idea for sure, and I, I think it's, um, it's somewhat related to that, our, our concepts of public funding of elections, where, where there's public money for candidates uh, to, again, a set amount and, and d- dependent on limiting expenditures, outside expenditures that can overwhelm that kind of system. So whether it's airtime or public funding rather than, you know, leaving our, our elections to a few private donors or other reforms, uh, I think there's a lot of good ideas out there when and uh, when we have the power once again to actually debate those ideas and begin to implement them, uh, I think we'll we'll be able to see you know what really works and and what works better than other things, what maybe is a good idea, but on the ground doesn't work as well. Um, we'll be back to the kind of uh, laboratory of democracy uh, that yes. that uh, Brandeis talked about where, you know, some towns, some states could try certain approaches. Other, uh, the federal government could try things like like the TV idea you're talking about, and we'd be able to see what works. But until we reset the constitutional foundation for mm-hmm. democracy, mm-hmm. and until we correct the Supreme Court's notion that we're not allowed to even try those ideas because somehow that would limit uh, this 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 sort of new uh, fabrication of mm-hmm. rights for corporations and the super wealthy to buy and, and trade in our election place and democracy space, then we can't even try those ideas. So I think that's a, an interesting idea. There are many good ideas that would really be excellent reform. But until we can say, you know what, you don't actually have a right to spend unlimited money and buy our politicians, buy our process, and silence the voices of most Americans, until we can say that we are permitted to limit that yes. so that we can create other spaces for debate, and for election uh, election activities, um, we're not going to be able to even begin to explore those ideas. So I think the 28th Amendment sets the foundation, and there are many, many good reform ideas that could stand on that foundation. And we'll see really a new century of a, a flourishing American democracy again when we can get there. 
Oh, that sounds terrific. And I have two kids, and I want a democracy for them. You have a daughter as well. we got to restore our democracy. We can't let you go without uh, telling people how they can contact American Promise and find out more about this event coming up in uh, late September. What's uh, some website to which you can point people? Yeah, thanks so much, Bert. There sure is. So go to AmericanPromise.net. Think of network, AmericanPromise.net, and you'll see information both about American Promise but also about the conference. It's really going to be a terrific opportunity for any any Americans who want to help us get this done. We've got people coming from 35 states so far. Somebody just signed up from Alaska yesterday. Yeah. And so we're going to we're really bringing people in from all over the country. It's going to be a terrific event and you can find out more at americanpromise.net. Thank you so much. We have to make this happen. There is no other option. Thanks, Jeff Clements, for being with us on Keeping Democracy Live. We're going to do it. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Bart. In the air, from those nads to Yenemen Square. It's coming from the field that this ain't exactly real, or it's real, but it ain't exactly there. From the war against disorder, from Sirens night and day From the fires of the homeless From the ashes of the gay Democracy is coming To the USA and we are going to make that happen all working together we are not powerless and uh, talk about democracy there is an election coming up uh, pretty soon and unless something incredibly unforeseen happens Donald Trump will lose the upcoming election if it's going if it keeps going the way it has been it's going to be as Bernie Sanders would say huge it is appearing more and more that he it's like he doesn't even want to win. There's virtually no question Hillary Clinton will beat Donald Trump, and pretty easily. The looming questions remains ahead for the formerly grand old party. What next? Will the damage from the Trump campaign be so great that not only will it take down many down-ticket Republicans— uh, who've got to be very, very scared right now, but might it be so bad that the party— simply does not survive? What, from being a candidate and a 14-year veteran in my state Senate, of course I have a lot of Republican friends. And I, I almost feel sorry for them. There are some good people who sincerely care about their state and their country. No question Trump is doing serious harm to the Republican brand. Here to discuss options for the Republican Party after what looks like uh, an embarrassing debacle ahead is Rob Garver, whose article, Planning the Purge, 
What will the GOP look like after Trump appears in the fiscal times? Thanks for being with us, Rob Garver. Glad to be here, Bert. Well, uh, also, uh, uh, Garver is a longtime reporter on the intersection of the federal government and the private sector. He's national correspondent for Fiscal Times and is based in Washington, D.C. He's also written for ProPublica, The New York Times, and other publications. Well, in your article, you point out that the Wall Street Journal's Brett Stevens is one of many arguing that the best hope for the future of the Republican Party is for Trump to lose and lose badly. Why would he say this? How could this help repair the Republican Party if he loses really badly? Well, I, I think uh, people think of it as, as as letting the fever break, really. The, there's this concern that uh, should Trump lose a close election, um, that he will, uh, you know, and he's already laid the groundwork for this, that he'll he'll claim it was rigged, um, that it was stolen from, uh, that the, that the, you know, the real will of the voters was not respected, and in no small part that he would blame it on his fellow Republicans who, who uh, you know, failed to coalesce behind him on, you know, people like Stevens. Um, that can be a very powerful narrative, uh, this, this idea of a, a stab in the back. Um, oh, it's, yeah. it's been used before by <laughs> folks I won't... Uh, yeah. I, I won't mention, because it always <laughs> lowers the tone of the debate. <laughs> but... Uh, this is something that that the people like Stevens desperately want to avoid, and they want to see Trump go down in flames, so that there is no credible case to be made that you know, but for the support of uh, the never Trump element of the party, uh, he 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 might be president. Uh huh. Interesting. So they want a you know just a a solid knockout to to start again, and. Exactly. My memory goes back reasonably far, and in my memory, neither American party has ever really marched in lockstep among its own members. There are always divisions, sometimes minor, sometimes serious. The Democratic Party, for example, has seen splits between the old strong Southern segregationists who were a big part of the Democratic Party and those who, of course, insisted on an end to racism and segregation. There have been the institutional establishment Democrats on one hand, and many from what Paul Wellstone called the Democratic wing of the Democratic Party. Sure, the, sure. There was no small degree of hostility this year between traditional liberal, liberal Democrats supporting Bernie Sanders and the relatively new Democratic leadership conference people, the pro-corporate, more hawkish centrists like uh, Hillary Clinton. Divisions within the Republican Party... They didn't suddenly start with the nomination of Donald Trump as the party's standard bearer. Please tell us about the lay of the land, the various factions, the internal divisions within the Republican Party, which have vied for prominence over the last uh, few years or so. Well, uh, with the rise of the Tea Party, you saw a kind of a hardening of the position of the far right wing of the Republican Party. These are the the Freedom Caucus folks in the House who made... John Boehner's life hell, and uh, essentially drove him out of the House of Representatives. Um, they're the people Paul Ryan has been trying with varying degrees of success to to tame um, as he tries to run the House. Um, this is a a group of people that, that are very, uh, very distinct 
from the old school John Boehner sort of uh, I think as as uh, the president called him country club Republicans who oh, were yes. very much about Main Street and business uh, and uh, you know kind of keeping the uh, keeping the country well governed even while you called for a you know smaller government uh, lower taxes etc cetera, etc cetera. this this is a very um, culturally conservative crowd um, that views, and you know, this is this is no great insight that that views uh, any kind of uh, deviation from a, a, their position as as a a sort of betrayal. Yeah. And what's really remarkable here is that one of the leading lights in that movement um, is now running the Trump campaign. Um, this this uh, gentleman, uh, Steve Bannon of, of Breitbart, has been one of the loudest voices uh, going after people like Paul Ryan um, and and making compromise. Something that that uh, you know Republicans who were worried about a primary challenge are now reflexively avoiding. And the the Trump campaign and Trumpism, which I think is uh, something very very ugly and scary, it didn't come up, you know, as one who really believes in democracy and fairness for people. This stuff didn't spring up from nothing. I mean, Donald Trump didn't just uh, create this thing out of whole cloth. Doesn't the Republican Party have a responsibility to reflect on how they got here and to make changes accordingly? Does that mean they have to go back to what you, I think, correctly called the uh, country club Republicans? Are they reflecting on how they got here and what created this whole Trumpist uh, situation? I think think that very much so they are. Um, I think there are a lot of formerly hardcore conservatives who are, and I, I, I can't stress this enough, they're not changing their views. They're not suddenly saying, I've seen the light and I'm a Democrat. That's, that's not what's happening right, here. Right. Um, I, I don't know if you're familiar with, uh, he's a fellow radio host of yours, Charlie Sykes, in, um, uh, in Wisconsin. He made this, made this point the other day uh, in an interview. Uh, essentially, he said, we're, we're reaping the whirlwind here. We've spent mm. so many years denying the uh, authority of institutional kind of arbiters of what is and is not true, things like major newspapers, um, television, uh, television newscasters. You know, he said that while he believes that he believes that there's a, a real left-wing bias, that it's gotten to the point where Donald Trump can say virtually anything. And even people like Sykes, who has an ironclad conservative reputation mm-hmm. in, his, in his home state, cannot really push back against it because there's no authority that Trump's followers respect as as something that generally tells the truth. You can't say the New York Times did an investigation of this and found that Trump is lying to you because they will say, well, that's the liberal New York right, Times. Right, and, right. Uh, and, and Sykes is, is saying, we've done this. We've done this to ourselves. And um, I think there's a, you know, a recognition that that something's got to be done about it. But I don't think that there's any real sense uh, of what, what to exactly do. Exactly, that something is. <laughs> you know, and and it, I, I feel this kind of frightening sense of anti-intellectualism, as you mentioned. You know, the the former 
respected, uh, you know, institutions of the, the three networks and the New York Times and stuff like that, there's this strong anti-intellectual feeling and anybody with experience is like rejected and seen as some kind of, uh, I don't know, traitor or something, or just somebody not to be trusted. That's kind of a, a frightening situation where, you know, people who have actual experience in governing are now rejected just because they know what the heck they're doing. If you just tuned in to Keeping Democracy Alive, our guest on this part of the show is Rob Garver, national correspondent for Fiscal Times. He, uh, we're looking at uh, what will a GOP look like after Trump? Uh, in, in the uh, likely scenario of Trump being soundly defeated, how likely is it that those who jumped on the Trump train might be purged? And per- <laughs> pur- purged is a word, <coughs> excuse me, I think of with like Stalin and Trotsky and things like that. How likely is it that that the Trump people might be purged if Trump gets uh, soundly defeated, as looks likely? Well, I mean, that's that's an open question. It, it really is. I mean, right now the the two the Trump pro-Trump and anti-Trump segments of the GOP are like a you know, divorced couple yeah. living in the same house while they try to figure out who gets to keep it. Um, and it's it, it's not perfectly clear who will get to keep it. Um, there are anti-Trump folks who would like to see the enablers uh, of Trump, you know, exposed and run out of the party. But there are the Sean Hannitys who think the purge is going to happen in in quite the other direction. Yeah, the people who failed to get behind the party's nominee are the ones who are going to be driven out. Um, it is. It's not clear to me. I don't think it's clear to anyone. Um, how this will shake out, but the one thing that is clear is that, you know, like any civil war or even a family argument, it's it's going to be brutal and ugly because, in addition to the anger, there's a sense of betrayal. Um, so it's, yeah. this is not going to be pretty. No, it's not. And there's various there there have long been various factions within each major party, and you know, within the Republican Party, I I worked with with both and as i said in the beginning i I almost feel sorry for my republican friends i mean they're they're like wringing their hands and it's possible that that those who failed to support trump might also be held accountable and there's a lot of strength and anger building up it, it seems and you know, given that there were at least two factions within the Republican Party before 2016, the, the traditional pro-business, small government, social moderates, and then there were the right-wing social conservatives, I have a hard time calling conservative because I don't think they literally conserve anything. They're radical right-wingers, religious extremists, the Tea Party. Uh, is it is reconciliation and reunification even possible, or is it going to have to be one or the other, do you think? Well, uh, I do think it's it's possible. Um, I mean, I, I think on the fringes, you're going to lose some people. You're going to lose some people who, who just cannot get past the betrayal they feel, and I think that, that could be on either side. Do I think rec- uh, reconciliation is possible? Yes, I do. Um, I think sometime around... January, <laughs> late January of next year, when, when Clinton, President Clinton yeah. uh, is is in the news all the time, that will be a uh, you know a, a common enemy is a is a right. is a fairly uh, yes it's strong a uh, organizing principle for people to come together. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. 
I remember during the uh, war in Vietnam uh, that uh, our best organizer on the anti-war side was President Nixon. Yeah, it's the same kind of thing. <laughs> so they they could uh, reconcile. I mean, they they've been in the same party for a long time, but I just see the the antipathy from one side toward the other very very strong. And and who knows what gonna ha- what's gonna well, happen? Well, yeah, I think I, I think there is a. Sp- a significant part of the party that would like to see uh, a purge of the Trump people, and not just because they're angry, but because they look at the they look at the polling data, and they see what Trump is doing to the Republican Party with young voters. Yes. Um, you mentioned Nixon a moment ago. Uh, USA Today poll came out the other day, and one of the really striking things that they uh, discovered there is that. Trump is doing worse among young voters than Nixon did in the early 70s during the you know, years of, of war protests and, uh, uh, you know, general unrest. That's really Nixon saying was something. Still more pop- yes, it, it really <laughs> is. And there's, that's a huge long-term problem for the Republican Party because party identification um, – political scientists will tell you it's, it's, it's what's called sticky – um, if you go to the polls at 18 and vote as a Democrat, um, you're more likely to vote as a Democrat when you're 22 and 24 and 26 and, uh, 50 and, and on and on. Yeah. Party identification does change, but there's an inertia to it, um, and it's hard to, hard to reverse. So this is the, getting rid of him might be something that, that people taking the long view uh, want to see happen, not just him, but but the yeah. element of the party that energized him and and uh, you know put him where he is now. That's a lot of people, though. I can imagine them being frightened to do that as well. I mean, he won, you know, uh, seventeen candidates. He was the guy that made it. He's drawn big crowds, and to uh, alienate specifically, intentionally alienate all those people. That's kind of risky as well. So I, I don't... There's no good answer here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, of course, I see a good answer in getting rid of the guy. But, and, you know, I, I, I've all long thought that, that if the Republican Party were smart, and it usually isn't, from what I can tell, that they would move back toward the, the pro-business, small government, you know, get away from the social conservative stuff. You know, we, we, I thought we largely defeated that in the uh, uh, Civil War, but, uh, you know, this, it, it's, it's still there. And, you know, in both parties, pragmatists, and I like to consider myself one, often chide the purists in their midst. There's an old saying, uh, never let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Ideological purity has been the downfall of political parties and movements probably forever. Might there be a powerful faction now insisting on ideological purity? And and I wonder how you think uh, that will play, Rob. Well, I think that's been a, a problem for the... Uh, for the GOP for the last 10, 15 years. Uh, it, it, uh, I mean, it's, it's what lost John Boehner, the House, the, the fact that he was willing to compromise. I'm sorry, didn't lose him. It lost him his, his position in the House. He, he was essentially forced to retire, yeah. um, give up his position as Speaker, because a small but extremely dedicated element uh, of his... Um, Republican conference 
was relentless about embarrassing him on the floor by failing to get behind bills that they felt gave the Democrats too much of what they wanted. Um, it's, I mean, that is, that is the root of much of, not all, but much of the dysfunction in Congress since 2010. Yeah. That's clearly the case. We're talking about uh, the formerly grand old party uh, future after the Trump debacle. Our guest is uh, Rob Garver, national correspondent with the Fiscal Times, which if you don't read that, it's some good stuff in there. Very, very informative. And in your article, you speculate, and speculation is always dangerous because I find politics is always on. Un- unpredictable, but that Carly Fiorina, the former Hewlett-Packard CEO who's run for the nomination, never really took off, might put her name forward to succeed uh, Reince Priebus uh, as the chair of the Republican National Committee. What might the pluses and minuses of that be, and what any other names you see out there? I mean, that, that's a big deal, who the next uh, party chair is going to be. It is, and it's such a god-awful-sounding job right now. I'm not sure why anyone would want it, but <laughs> apparently uh, Priebus is uh, considering um, running for another term. Um, mm-hmm. He has been, you know, Trump's ultimate uh, enabler here. The, the RNC could have taken a stand. It would have been practically unprecedented, but this was an unprecedented election. Um, they could have taken a stand against Trump. They did not. Um, for better or for worse, he's going to be seen as, um, you know, a, a Trump's Trump's enabler. Um, what Fiorina would bring is a, you know, she has a business background. She can run an organization. You people, you know, argue about her successes and failures in the in the private sector, right, but right. you know, plainly, she's she's a capable person. Um, she has also, from the get-go, been anti-Trump. Um, so were she to take that position, it would be a pretty strong statement of where the RNC is going in a post-Trump world. This wouldn't be a all-is-forgiven, <laughs> everybody come back. She, she has been a virulent critic of Donald Trump since the earliest going of the, the campaign. Interesting. So she might be able to do it, and uh, I, I can't help but think that that if it goes as it looks like it's going, that you know somebody that that they'll want to sort of eject and move past the the Trumpists. It, it, you know that kind of scary gang of, of of people out there. I mean, obvious open racism and, and you know anti minorities and just horrible stuff. Donald Trump, I think, has an ego, a significant ego. Assuming he loses, might he intentionally energize his large number of devotees and complicate any kind of rebuilding? Do you think, I mean, he does have quite the ego, I guess, or maybe it's just about <laughs> money. I don't know. Yeah, I, it, it's, it's hard for me to, it's hard for me to think that Donald Trump would leave quietly. Um, <laughs> I mean, there's all sorts of speculation out there that, that this is all set up for him to uh, essentially develop a, an alternative to Fox, a more, even more right-wing hmm. uh, media empire, and that he's sowing right. the seeds for this. Uh, Brian Stetler on CNN was speculating about this yesterday. Um, it, it, who knows what he's going to do, but the idea that he would 
uh, go quietly retire into the uh, quietly to Trump Tower and start plotting his next golf course. For a man who loves the spotlight as much as he probably does, oh, it, yeah. it, it really doesn't seem likely. Um, seems much more likely the, the ugly scenario of him trying to spin out the uh, the game was rigged theory uh-huh. and uh, burn the house down on his way out. Mm. I can see that. I, I mean, what has the party done for him? Not much, although they seem scared of him and didn't know what to do. But, but burning the house down on his way out, I can imagine that. And there's a lot of nasty uh, people out there who uh, have been shown to be frankly, rather thuggish, and that could, uh, that's could that got to scare the party quite a bit, the, the more traditional, sane portion of the party. It, it is rare that groups in power step back and reflect on how they arrived at what Chester A. Riley called a revolting development, which this is. <laughs> Might the party elders now agree... I mean, if anybody still respects the party elders, agree that enabling the growth of the Tea Party and the far right was a serious strategic mistake and openly oust them. In other words, might we soon see two parties where there has been one? What are your thoughts about that, Rob Garver? It's certainly possible. I think it's, I think it's a, a mistake to necessarily conflate the Tea Party and Donald Trump, though, is the problem, yeah. is that he certainly has attracted an element of the Tea Party. But uh, Ben Sass, for instance, the, the Nebraska senator, is a, I mean, he is, a, he is a Tea Party Republican if there ever was one, and he is adamantly against Trump. What you're more likely to see, I think, is a division that breaks along a kind of populist line and a more traditional conservative uh, Republican line of, of, mm. of, of the the country club type that we yeah. were talking about before. Yeah. Um, how that would shake out in terms of a second party, uh, I honestly don't know, Bert. I, this is I, I, anger. I don't think is anger is sufficient to cause the break, but I don't know that anger is sufficient to create a party with a coherent set of ideas and proposals that would be taken seriously by a large percentage of the population. Uh, Interesting, because let's face it, we've had two parties for a long time, and the you know, the country club Republicans and the centrist uh, DLC uh, Democrats can be seen as serving the same master. You know, for, for right or wrong, a lot of people see it that way. And yet, I mean, and, and there's been a populist impulse in American history since uh, after, just shortly after the Civil War. It's been there for a long time, but they're, the populist, I mean, they've tried William Jennings Bryan, uh, Huey Long, lots of people. It's never formed as a specific party. I, I want, I mean, well, there was a populist party, but we still have the Democratic and Republican Party. I can imagine the Republican Party elders being very, very afraid that the party could indeed split now. I just wonder if they can, you know, attract the, if they want to attract the haters, you know, the angry people, are they willing to just give up them and to think that they might have more credibility? I mean, what they want is to win elections. I I just, I I mean, I think, you know, the, one of the 
things you have to consider is whether they're playing a long game or a short game. Um, I think it's arguable that there are a lot of people who are Democrats by default today because there are elements within the Republican Party that they just can't uh, associate themselves right, with, uh, sure. whether that is you know, extreme religiosity and, and, and uh, you know, efforts to impose religious values on other people or, um, you know, as we've seen with a lot of the Trump supporters, some very, very thinly disguised racism. Um, if certain elements were pushed out of that, out of the Republican Party and into a, uh, you know, kind of a, a rump third party, mm. um, I don't think it's beyond the realm of possibility that, some of the more conservative Democrats in the world might take a second look at the GOP. Um, uh-huh. the, the Blue Dog Democrats were a real thing not that long ago. And they didn't get killed off by Democrats. They got killed off by Republicans. Um, so it, it's... Uh, I'm, this is all speculative, obviously. Oh, Bert, sure. But uh, it's, uh, you know, a, a Republican establishment that wanted to play the long game um, might think it's worthwhile to spend a few years in the wilderness mm. um, rebuilding, reconstituting itself as a uh, different feeling party that might then be able to compete um, on a you know, slightly different ground than they have in the past. And interesting, I think, that Hillary Clinton is, is now openly trying to appeal to uh, traditional Republicans and is having some success with that. And there's always this realignment and confusion, and it's uh, always unpredictable and somewhat fun, sometimes a little scary. Hey, thank you so much. Very, very informative. Rob Garver uh, with the Fiscal Times, and uh, thanks so much for being with us and shedding light on uh, the possible uh, future for, if any, of the Republican Party. Thanks so much. It's a pleasure, Bert. Thanks for having me. Thank you. We'll see if they can pick up the pieces. Well, there's just a little bit of magic in the country. Music we're singing. So let's begin. We're bringing you back down home where the folks are happy. Sitting, picking out a grin. Casually, you and me. We'll pick up the pieces. Ah, In the country music we're singing So let's begin We're bringing you back down home Where the folks are happy Sitting, picking at a grin Casually, you and me We'll pick up the pieces Ah, If you had the time to stay Would you sit yourself down and play? Country music, singing songs that we both knew. Lord, I know that the day will come when the both of us will sit down and strum.